Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's been two weeks, but I was at Comic-Con for a long stretch of that, so yeah. I only have five movies to talk about. You've got four. I have four. Now, I should say, I wanted to have five, but then two nights ago, uh, when okay. I went to... When I, see, I was going to say we have to do a speed round for, for time reasons, but I see we're going to stretch out and tell this story. It's, it doesn't take that long to tell but i i went to a theater i have the amc pass so i got my ticket ahead of time i was a little not even i was like going to be two minutes late so like i probably wasn't even going to miss the first trailer um but anyway so i walk up and uh the there's a crowd of people around our specific cinema our specific theater and uh and it was there was like a caution thing, and apparently it was closed for cleaning. And I was like, and "Oh, was, okay." Did you say the name of the movie? It's I was gonna I was gonna see Spider Man uh, Far, Far From Home. home. Uh, far, yes. <laughs> just wanted to say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where it's just like, oh my gosh, Spider Man's got some secrets. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, wouldn't it be wonderful? That's Todd Haynes, right? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great to see him do like a superhero movie? See, that's what I want. Is the 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 genre is now so well established that I want to see like these odd directors start making them, but I know that's probably not going to happen. Uh, I don't know because I mean you have gotten like uh, we're already off off track. Yeah, um, and I also am just realizing that I have a sixth movie. Son um, of a bitch. You know what? I'm going to say what it is right now. Uh, I watched Fast Color because this is going to tie in. This is like a very small low budget non-action maybe not superhero sort of like an x-men movie it's basically about a uh, um, a family of women who have superpowers where they can sort of they're just like what's it called not telepathy but where you can move things telekinetic telekinetic yeah they have telekinetic uh, powers and uh, uh, Gugu Mbata Ra plays Hmm. um, a woman who has sort of her inability to control her powers is tied into her history of alcoholism. So she's cleaned up. She's come back to where her grandmother and her daughter, her daughter who has never really known her are living sort of in hiding because the government is looking for these women because they, uh, have, have superpowers. Um, and, uh, anyway, there's a lot of really beautiful imagery and sort of, uh, hmm. um, symbology, um, uh, about, uh, uh, about what these things represent and there's really good music and you've got Gugu Mbatara who's fantastic but I also feel like unfortunately for every for every sequence that is really powerful and moving and innovative and innovative there's a sequence of two people just explaining things to each other uh, yeah. and so it was kind of kind of like I, I was really hot and cold on the movie the entire time but when it's good it really is it's, it's it, and this is why I chose to bring it up is it really is what you're talking about it's yeah. it's it's distinct it's um, um, idiosyncratic it's yeah. personal uh, and it's a movie about people with superpowers anyway all right. Well, there's one down. Yeah. Um, so I, so uh, there are people gather around the theater. There was like this caution tape because, and, and I'm, it's not an actual tape. It's like this uh, cloth fabric type thing that just gets pulled out when the theater is being cleaned. So nobody comes in. Uh, so come to find out that the theater was not, I mean, it was being cleaned, but not in the way that I expected. 
was an unclean theater. It was an unclean theater. Um, uh, and eventually my screening was canceled and it was the last one of the day. So I just went home. Uh, but they gave me like a voucher, uh, which is nice. But, um, but yeah, uh, they needed, uh, they were unable to get the family of bats that had nested in that theater out in time to start the next screening. And so I have no idea how several bats got in that theater. And are they in any of the other theaters or they just, they liked this one, whatever it was, it was very strange. And, and part of me is like, I really would have liked, I mean, it'd be terrifying, but I really would have loved to be at the screening or, you know, seeing the movie when people realized what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, my um, family, many years ago, my well, family... Quick, you asked if the bats were in any other theaters. Actually, what happened was they bought a ticket to crawl. Exactly. <laughs> and then tried to stay and see Far From Home for free. Oh, see, the way they I see it... They were trying to do one of those free double feature things that we've all done. See, the way I see it is uh, they bought a ticket for Crawl, but they had already seen it. Okay. And so they bought another ticket because they wanted to help Crawl's uh, box office <laughs> go up. Um, because bats and alligators are friends. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, years ago, my uh, my family, we got, like, a, for a week, we rented a houseboat and and went up and down like Lake Powell um it was not my kind of trip but uh we did it and my brother and I uh liked to sleep up on like the roof of the houseboat uh which had sort of a small railing around it so we weren't going to fall off um and then one and every night you dock in a different place and there was one we we docked at one place and it was kind of near a cave So my brother and I are, are, I mean, it's not like hanging over us or anything like that, but it's near one. Mm -hmm. And so my brother and I are laying there on the top and we hear a little flutter, not far from our faces. And then we start to hear more and they seem to be getting closer and more, more bold. Uh, And it was, it was bats flying over our faces probably and it was dark so we couldn't totally make it i was like they're probably maybe six inches from our faces and then we're like i think we're gonna sleep inside on this one yeah um but yeah i'm scared of bats oh i didn't know that well it's because um i'm terrified of rabies sure because people think that rabies is rare it's not yeah there is no cure for it and it's everywhere it's just that the medical community is so proactive about like treating for rabies. If there's any chance Hmm. that that's why there are so few. So it's treatable, but it's not curable only. That's the thing. Only (laughs) if you were treated almost immediately. Listeners, I wish you could see how big David's eyes are right now. So scary. Yeah. Like you could have been bitten by one of those bats. Yeah. And then six months later, Two weeks later, a week or two later, it would have been too late. Sure. But six months later, you start showing symptoms, and then you die a horrible, horrible death. Ugh. Yeah. Rabies is... If you read about what rabies does to people and how much rabies there is in the world, it's something that I think about all the time. Um, Well, now I will, so thank you. Yeah. And be careful. uh, So bats? Mm Mm-hmm. Raccoons? Yeah. Squirrel... Or raccoon... uh, What's the thing? That, Chipmunk? No, the one... Uh, skunks. 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 Okay. Foxes. Okay. These are among the most... Uh, the biggest rabies carriers uh, in North America. 
I don't think I need to worry about getting that close to a skunk that it's going to bite me. Like I tend to avoid those anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, so, right. um, yeah, rabies, rabies, really scary. But you had uh, another encounter with bats uh, in Palm Springs? Yeah, uh, our hotel, which was actually kind of a, a little boutique hotel where there were two sides of it uh, on either side of the street. There was like, oh, here's the Moroccan side, here's the Mediterranean side. Really beautiful uh, hotel. Um, and we were aware of it because uh, Jen, as a wedding photographer, has shot there uh, as a venue uh, for people's weddings. And so uh, we kind of had an inn and got a nice room and got an upgrade, which is great. Mm. Um, and it's very, and it's, I say hotel, but I mean, it's, it's open. Like there's a common area and it's outdoors where the pool is and there are palm trees, uh, growing out. And so there's an, there was an evening where you can sit by the pool and they project a classic film, which I'll be talking about later. They project a classic, a classic film and you can watch it and all that. And as we were watching it, I heard that flutter noise that I was horrendously familiar with and, uh, realized that like, Oh, there are bats hanging out in these, uh, palm trees. Now in this case, they weren't any, they weren't close to us at all. They're really far up there but yeah they're definitely there and i was like what is going on with bats in my life it's very strange yeah you didn't respond to my joke you told me the story over text i texted you the poster from the motion picture bats and said who are you diamond phillips see i'm glad you thought it was funny i didn't respond at all no i was like i I guess that joke didn't work no it worked too well because i was like i don't know how to respond to this Um, all right so let's start talking about movies i talked about one i'll talk about another and then we'll switch off okay uh this one won't take me long i watched the documentary uh, yeah a documentary i guess you, it has its own style. Um, good idea, not very well executed. The documentary is called The Rise and Fall of the Brown Buffalo. Okay. It's about um, uh, oh, um, Oscar Zeta Acosta. Oh, okay. Um, the uh, inspiration for Dr. Gonzo from yeah. uh, Fear and Loving in Las Vegas, although that's not something he was very happy about because uh, he didn't. He sued Hunter S. Thompson, his, hmm. his good friend, for because he didn't. He changed the name. He changed the race of the character to yeah. Samoan, and uh, uh, yeah, so he sued. But um, basically, I mean, the guy had a really interesting and sort of mysteriously short life. He kind of disappeared in Mexico, uh, and no one knows what happened to him. Uh, but he was a uh, a lawyer um, and very specifically focused on Chicano rights cases, mm-hmm. um, largely in Los Angeles, but also in Boulder, uh, Colorado, which is where he knew, um, Hunter S. Thompson from. Um, but the conceit of this documentary is that it's full of interviews. Yeah. Except the interviewees are all actors playing the people they're supposed to be. So like, you're seeing an interview with his first wife, his, his white wife that he, <laughs> that he had, mm. uh, when he lived in, in Texas as, as a young man. Um, and it's not played like it's not her as an old woman. Now you're seeing a woman in her mid twenties. And I think reciting things that I'm not sure how much of it is written and how much of it is, is, yeah. is transcribed from other things. It's, uh, unfortunately the effect most of the effect is very awkward because most yeah. of the cast is not that great. I think the guy they get to do Hunter S. Thompson actually does a pretty good impression. Okay. He's not doing Johnny Depp right. as Hunter S. Thompson. Right. He is, uh, 
he's 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 doing Hunter S. Thompson. Is he's doing? I'm not. I wouldn't say it's a great actorly performance. It's a good yeah. Hunter S. Thompson impression that he's doing. Um, it's an odd it's a, choice. Yeah, odd choice. Also, really odd is that there's a part um, in which he's because there's also a certain dramatization. So it's the part where he's talking about how. Um, when he was this lawyer and he kept showing up and was specifically taking on these cases, there were other Latino lawyers and judges who tried to talk him out of like being so, so radical or so forward about what he was interested in. And so there's a, there's a scene of a judge coming and talking to him and asking him to tone it down. And the judge is played by, former Los Angeles mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. <laughs> it was so weird. And it's like, he's got like three lines. And uh, I'm sure that most people in the country who watch this don't immediately know what Antonio Villaraigosa looks like. But I sure do. Uh, yeah. And as soon as he, said, he showed up, I was like, why is the former mayor in this one scene? Uh, it's strange movie. Um... It's yeah, good for learning about Oscar's data Acosta. It's an interesting idea, but yeah. uh, not not very well done. Okay, all right. Uh, so I saw, I did see Crawl. Oh yay! Um, did you see it? No, I haven't seen. Oh it. okay. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's an incredibly stressful film. I'll say that. Um, That's what I'm hoping for, kind of. Yeah. Uh, don't worry, you'll get there. Um, and and people have said that it's a it's sort of a horror slash disaster movie because it is about a hurricane and these characters being trapped in a house that is flooding um, with these alligators. So it's like it's it's that's one. Uh, it's a big part of it. The whole, the reason they're trapped in the house is because of the alligators. So um, it's not it, it's not a situation where it's like the that movie The Edge where they're in danger before the bear ever shows up. You know right. Um, so, but there are many alligators. There are many. Yes. Do they? I haven't read anything about it. Okay. Is there a thing where one of them has a particular one of the alligators has a defining characteristic? Thank God, no. Okay. I'm glad. I, the, I'm really like, glad. There's a moment where they, in defense, they like stab one of the alligators like in the eye. I'm like, okay, there's now a one-eyed alligator, and that's going to be the one we focus on, right? Because we need to see, kind of humanize or distinguish. Right, need a villain. They, yeah, and they don't. Thank I'm, God. Yeah, I'm really glad. Because um, I hate that. I hate when they do that. Um, so here's what I'll say: like the film, you know, it's narrative. the The relationship between the father and daughter. It's about as generic as you get. The actors do a great job, but you know, who cares? It's sort of like what you and I were talking about when we first saw the Raid Redemption. That they're incorporating this story. And it's like, and the story's perfectly well done, but at the same time, it just feels so perfunctory. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, what I will say is that it was shot in Serbia. Huh. Uh, it looks like Florida to me. Uh, they may, and what's more is it is so fully realized and just so expertly done that we are looking at a flooded Florida street, not just the house, but the whole street. And I just accept it. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't, and in retrospect, I don't know how they did it. Like, I'm sure there's some green screen. I'm sure there's some actual sets being built, but I don't, I don't, I can't really see the seams. I can see some of the seams as far as like the CG alligators, but as far as the setting, the palm trees, the palm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just don't, 
I just accept it and I don't think about how it was done and which goes a long way in just the in in setting the mo- the mood and the tone and that sort of thing. So and then one of the other things that I will mention is that you know, if you've got an aquatic animal that's going to that's trying to eat people, you're going to think of jaws first and foremost uh-huh. and you're going to think of sharks. And so what I like is that I don't think they fully utilize it, but when you're telling a story that is not sharks, then you need to essentially differentiate. You need to focus on why this animal specifically is scary. Otherwise, it's just like, okay, well, it's a shark in a, in leather, in a leather outfit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, one thing that I've always found so scary about alligators, and I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm scared of them, but one thing that I've always been fascinated by, and I find this to be a disturbing thing, is the way they can just essentially hover frozen in water Mm. you know what i'm talking about right like where their head is on the surface their body it it almost looks as though they are just standing up but they're not their body's just hanging out and regardless of tides or current right they're just there it's there they look like they're just completely frozen and so there's a moment yeah there's a moment where uh our our lead character emerges from this pipe and and just looks up above and just sees an alligator just doing that mm-hmm. and so it's just like if she makes any noise at all it's going to know she's there and so like moments like that's like yeah Sharks have to constantly be moving, which is scary in its own way. But like alligators, when you think about it, everything about an alligator is patience. Yeah. And it just waits you out and then it attacks. And and the is, film really capitalizes on that. Is the movie rated R? I don't remember. I think it probably is. It, there's there's some rough stuff in there, but I'm not 100%. I could see it be, being PG-13, but we do see an arm get wrenched off. Um so I'm not actually R-rated, sure. Yeah. It is R-rated. Um, 87 minutes. But yeah, and then it's also stuff like we we see, uh, you know, alligator's point of view in, in a couple of shots where we're outside the house now, and so we're seeing it go through the water. It's like, well, we've seen this before. We've seen it in Jaws. But what we don't see, like, again, it's a way to differentiate. What we don't see is uh, in Jaws is a fire hydrant. Mm-hmm. So like it's very murky, and so you really really can't make much out. But you see, you do see that the camera is moving forward, and then you just see a fire hydrant underneath this because we're looking yeah. at a flooded city street. Oh, so cool, and it's a really I effective film and very stressful. You will it will get to you. I'll I say that. Uh, all right, um, I'm going to see it on my own though. I'm not going to. Uh, Natalie does not do horror. Oh okay. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, Next up, man, this is this is gonna be a bummer from here. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a bummer. I, I don't think there's a, a single movie on my list today that I really love. Okay. Fast Color was probably the the, the closest, but uh, maybe one of the one of the my least favorite movies I watched recently comes out in theaters soon. It's called Britney Runs a Marathon, okay. and I feel bad saying bad things about it because it is such a well-meaning, innocent movie. Yeah, it's just. Uh, well, in the words of Gordon Ramsay, it's bland. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, I think loosely. I like the idea that as the as the movie was playing, you kept being like, "Now what's that there?" <laughs> um, and they're like, "Shh." <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So uh, it's a 
It's so late. I keep forgetting. Jillian Bell, who's an okay. actress that I like, uh, plays uh, a woman who is well. In Amy Schumer's terms, terms you'd call her a train wreck. Okay. Uh, you know, she uh, phones in at her job, mostly lives to drink and party and and stuff. And uh, but she also ends up dealing with some depression. And she, uh, I was going to say, ends up twice in a row. She uh, ends up joining a running group because mm-hmm. she has a. She had a falling out with her roommate, and so her upstairs neighbor, whom she's always hated, played by mm-hmm. Michaela Watkins, which is oh, yeah. a high point for me. I love Michaela Watkins. Um, invites her to join her running group. They become friends. Um, and then Brittany, played by Julian Bell, decides, let's run a marathon. And so yeah. she and a couple of her running friends spend a year training to run a marathon. So the movie just sort of takes place over the course of okay. uh, uh, a year. And it's just the kind of thing, like, it's... The movie is so full of her learning lessons. Yeah. And every scene seems to be about the lesson of the scene. Yeah. And it almost always weirdly like, like checking off a list, like the lesson, like, well, here's this scene's lesson. And then, well, she's learned that. And yeah. then she moves on to the next thing. It, do, it does do this sort of when it, when this set, when the fallback setback does happen, it, it feels almost perfunctory like well yeah. this is the part in the right you know in the second act yeah. where here's our crisis don't worry <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly um and jillian bell when she's allowed when the script allows her to be a real person and to be a person who is flawed uh is really great i think one of the things i've always liked about jillian bell as an actress as a comedic actress is that she is not afraid to be unpleasant mm-hmm. do you know what i mean yes um uh, and so when when Brittany uh, becomes a jerk and lashes out at people, she actually sells that yeah. very well. But the movie just seems it's you just and I'll, this is one of those movies where I'll fully admit when it got to the finale, I I shed tears because mm-hmm. that's what you're supposed to. That's what yeah. it was engineered to make you do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I always feel like it's like the movie if I stay with Chloe uh, Grace oh, Moretz yeah. like, which I also like balled at like I feel like that doesn't mean the movie is good it means it's working on a certain level yeah but it's I can I can be manipulated by that and still not like that the movie is manipulated it's like being tickled yeah it's that's great yeah and uh, something that I've that I've started telling my students uh, is that film is or art in general is manipulation right and we come to as we associate the word manipulation with negative like it's as like lying and that sort of thing and exploiting somebody's emotions and that kind of thing it's like no manipulation is just understanding how people work and playing into that for your own goal Uh, and if it's and if it's a work of art then like okay well there's that's what it has to be. Yeah, that's um, what you signed up for. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think that's the thing is there are movies that can be really good at emotional manipulation. But for most people, but like the emotions only go so far. And then you're and then if you are, if you'll pardon me, a trained movie watcher like you. Uh-huh your intellect takes over and you're like, Oh yeah. 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 That was not a, that didn't work for me. (laughs) You know? So the manipulate, it is possible to manipulate somebody's intellect, but it's a lot harder to do. I think emotions are a lot easier. Ask the Russians. Seems to be pretty easy, easy for that. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I did. I I actually talked about emotional and intellectual manipulation when talking about Soviet montage and propaganda hmm. films in the 1920s. Anyway, so that's pretty runs a marathon. 
All right. I watched a film. Uh, this is the film that I watched at the hotel. Oh, good. Poolside. With you and the bats. Me and the bats hanging out. Uh, it is a film I have not seen and a film that I frankly w- uh, probably could have gone my entire life without seeing. Not because it's bad, but because it just wasn't something I was ever interested in. And that is Howard Hawks' Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Oh, what a great movie. Yeah, it is great. Um, it's just one of those things. It's I don't such know. a coincidence, by the way, that you... Watch it because I don't know. Uh, you still read the AV Club, like I yeah. do. Do you know the there's the romantic comedy uh, series? Like every two weeks every, on Fridays. There's yeah, a, I don't remember the last one they did, but um, yeah. But well, a couple weeks ago there was one about gentlemen prefer oh, okay. even though I should read it as the woman pointed out the, the writer pointed out not really a romantic comedy but uh, kind of seen as not really it's more of a farce uh, yeah because um, it yeah. it's based on a play and I totally believe it mm-hmm. like it's it it has that quality to it yeah um, and one of the reasons that I never uh, I am not as in love or in or just inherently fascinated by Marilyn Monroe as some people oh. as a screen presence I think she is effective but uh, it just doesn't she just doesn't do much for me yes of course she's attractive and sultry and all that sort of thing I realize it's, it's a character that's, she's that's playing not nothing it's not nothing no but it's also not the only thing about her right like it's just so that's the thing is I think for me I kind of have an idea in my mind of who she is uh, as a performer and what I like about this is that it sort of comments on that and it sort of it plays that up and it plays that up and her character is aware of how she comes across and she's able to sort of turn it on when she needs to um, and so I, I like her character but for me it's all about Jane Russell I think she is great uh, in the film especially when she is also in the same way that you know I don't much enjoy uh some like it hot, but I love when Tony Curtis starts essentially doing a Cary Grant impression. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then here I love when Jane Russell, I like, I love her throughout the film, but I really like when she is essentially playing is doing an impression of her friend yeah, and oh, you yeah, see yeah. like that's, that's how she views her. Um, but and I and I really like a lot of the supporting uh, actors. Uh, Charles Co- Coburn as uh, uh, this guy Piggy, who actually like non ironically wears a monocle, um, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and then there's a little kid who like who's like wise beyond his years, and I found him to be hilarious. Um, and just in general, I mean, it's Howard Hawks, who's maybe the most reliable director in the history of Hollywood mm-hmm. for a non auteur. You know what I mean? Like, okay, yeah. I say non tour and that, like, I mean, he worked in every genre and conquered every yeah. genre. You know, yeah. Um, like, he, he, for me, his his like defining attribute as a director is just how reliable he is, and that he can he can exploit whatever emotion he needs to for maximum effect. You know, I love Scarface. And you would never think that it's the same director, except that he had a total command of the genre in which he's working and then creates one of the best examples of it. And so gentlemen prefer blondes as like a musical farce, um, with a romantic quality to it. Um, really, it really worked for me. It was, it was incredibly entertaining. It's a film I think I'll probably return to. I laughed several times. I really enjoyed the songs. Yeah. And even and and I I recognize that I should probably I should probably view Marilyn Monroe in a different way. I think 
it's very easy, especially these days, to see her first and foremost, if not exclusively, as a sex symbol or an icon. It's like, no, she was an actress. Mm -hmm. And yes, and she had a persona. uh, But in something like this, you can see that she's aware of her persona and she's willing to kind of goof on it a little bit as well. So I really, I was very pleasantly surprised. This reminds me, there's an episode we've talked about doing that we have to do with our friend Matt Patterson, Mm. which is a movie's about cruises about cruise ships sure uh, out to sea uh deep rising deep rising okay uh ghost ship ghost um, ship uh what's the one uh um, speed two cruise control um love affair which i saw at uh tcm okay. fest this this year uh, as a cruise ship movie yeah uh yeah we, we have to do that episode okay anyway um next up for me is a movie that i've been meaning to watch for years um and have been I'll say over the past three years, I've gone back and forth about whether I want to watch it. But it's a 2011 documentary called You've Been Trumped. Um, oh, okay. And it is a... Oh, is it about the golf course? It is about okay, Don- yeah. uh, Donald Trump trying to build a go- golf course in, in Aberdeen, in Scotland. Yeah. And um, buying up a bunch of land. And there's a bunch of people sort of on the outskirts of the land that he's bought... Who own who have like little farms and stuff and have lived there for in some cases generations and in some cases they've chosen to retire uh, there and they don't want to sell and basically Donald Trump um, uses his influence and money to make their lives miserable yeah and um, th- yeah so the movie's fine it's like standard sort of muckraking stuff um, but I, at one point I was watching like. Uh, and thinking like obviously I'm on these people's side, uh, but this movie's really one-sided. And then you actually because none of Donald Trump or any of his people agreed to be interviewed, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but then I realized you, you just have to show footage because one of the things that is so one of the many things that be so frustrating to people who don't like Donald Trump mm-hmm. is how how bald-faced he can be about what he's doing. Yeah, you know, like you see for a golf channel reality series he was playing up the all right all this uh uh these mounts of dirt that were that were moving mm-hmm. to make room for the golf course pile them over there so that those people who live over there can't see the ocean like block their view yeah. there. and he did that proudly like yeah. he, it wasn't something he tried to like oh no that we just that's the best place for it like right. no he put himself on camera for a golf channel documentary fucking with these people that's that's the thing that is the thing that is it's, so frustrating about Donald Trump. It's inherently bullying. Like yeah, it has a, he, he has never pretended not to be that. Yeah. And that's what's so frustrating Yeah, is that the only way that anyone gets called on their shit in this world is yeah. that they pretend to be something else. So yeah. Donald Trump has no qualms about not having any moral decency. And so therefore no one holds him to any moral standard. It's very right. frustrating. Um, but what I, what I found most interesting about the documentary in terms of in light of what's going on in the country now, um, is because obviously I don't like Donald Trump, but I feel like I have more when it comes to things like the, the concentration camps and things like, um, Brett Kavanaugh, which really upset me Mm -hmm. too. Um, my vitriol is not necessarily aimed at Donald Trump, but at the members of the GOP who keep not challenging him because 
having him in power is better for them than not. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that the Sopranos really uh, explored was the idea that it's very difficult or it's, it's easy to rationalize yourself out of doing the right thing when doing the right thing is going to have a negative effect on you. You know? Oh, yes, yes. You, you know, um, Tony Soprano has multiple right. opportunities to change for the better and talks about changing for the better. Yeah. But it would be hard for him to do it and it would mean money out of his pocket. Yeah. You like know? When the rubber it, meets the road, when yeah. it becomes, when it's no longer an abstraction yeah. and requires any level of sacrifice at all on his yeah. part, he won't do it. And so one of the things that's most frustrating about what ha- what's happening to these, these people in Aberdeen is not what Donald Trump's doing, but what the local business owners who are profiting from them and right. the local or the, the cops, uh, the way that they are stepping in, the, the, yeah. the way that the, the county cops, I'm not sure what they're called. I can't remember the name of the county. So it's the G, um, essentially become Donald Trump's like security yeah. force. You know, there's a, there's a land dispute over like what, uh, one, one landowner saying, well, the map drawn this year says my land goes to here. Right. The map drawn this year says that part is Donald Trump's land. And, the cops, they, they clearly pick a side. Yeah. The lawyer, the lawyers, uh, uh, um, the lawyer for the, the resident, um, makes the point that this isn't even a criminal, like, uh, mm-hmm. a property line dispute is a civil, you bring in lawyers, right? You don't bring in the cops to enforce that. Um, that's really frustrating. It's also like, um, the local government initially rejected the yeah. plan. And then basically the larger Scottish government seeing how it could benefit them financially basically came in and big for the local government and knocked their ruling aside and said, yeah, he can, he can, he can build here. It's a, it's really a fascinating documentary to watch, um, to see Donald Trump's tactics employed. Oh yeah. Um, so similarly to where they are being now that said, as far as the filmmaking, it's pretty much your standard sort of like, uh, yeah. muckraker type of, uh, and I imagine stuff. the filmmaking doesn't have to be that amazing when the story yeah. you're telling is so inherently, uh, impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember hearing about the, the film, uh, during the primary and I was like, Oh, it's right there. It's everyone. Like if you want to know the type of, guy he is and that was the thing is during the the primary and certainly during the the general he he always talked about winning now he, he rarely talked about what he wanted to do he only talked about winning and and i can understand like who doesn't want to be on the winning side which is why when he started winning primaries people just start moving to him as often happens like when you're the front runner when you've got momentum people join you but it's like but the only thing he's selling is winning. Like, like what if you like win at something bad? Like what if, you know, it's anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, okay. All right. So speaking of politics, I'm reluctant to get in this, into this, but it's a film I've seen yeah, a few times okay. already. Because I don't want to be here all night. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a film I've seen a few times already. It's part of the curriculum for the class that I'm teaching now. So I watched it two weeks ago with my first session of students, and then I watched it again this week. And the f- and I'd seen it before. I watched it last year when I did these classes, and then I saw it in the theater. And 
there was always something that struck me as just a little off, but I couldn't figure out what it was from a political standpoint. And that movie is The Ides of March. Oh, did I not mention it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you didn't say it. Uh, Z- Zootopia. Um, oh, okay. And so... Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and that film is JFK. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we had this conversation on the movie journal a year ago. A year ago. Did did I talk about like just I understand what it's try, what it's trying to do and what it mostly does as far as like the the theme of the film as far as teaching obviously tolerance and not judging a book by its cover and that sort of thing. Yeah, we did have this because we I, did have, I this. have a disagree. I think the the, uh, the premise of the film is a little deeper than that well i think the the purpose the 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 theme of the film the the message of the film is a little deeper and what i'll say is that regardless of the message oddly enough um i think it has a really hard time with the allegory um because it's not merely oh animals we've got predator and prey and that kind of that's that's all well and good but because it incorporates a mystery that needs to be solved and a mystery where like animals are now posing threats to other animals by no fault of their own. Mm. Um, it's like, okay, well now it's, I know it sounds weird. It's different than animal farm. Like that's about how the farm is being run, which now the uh, analogy, the allegory works perfectly because the farm is a country, Mm. you know, but here it's like uh, you're, they're telling what I think is actually a very compelling detective story but at the but they still have to accomplish their allegorical goals and you know when i see how many writers this thing had it's like oh some someone's gonna get lost and i think one of the things that get that really gets me is that there are times when the story the the story the specific story they're telling wins out in which case the character's and the characters actually function pretty well in that. But then it's like, oh, okay, hang on. We haven't touched on theme in a while, so let's push that out there. And then the characters act in a way that feels like it's being dictated by the theme. The one And the, the part that gets me... I'm trying to remember because I think we talked about this. Is the press conference. But that's when she... Sorry, if I remember correctly, this is when... Officer Hops, or whatever her name yeah. is. Is that her name? Uh, Judy Hops. Judy Hops, yeah. Um, when she, in in trying to make this sort of cathartic end of the movie message, ends up insulting yeah. the Predator guy. And I mean, me, she, that's what uh, is so fascinating about the movie, is that it, it shows you the hero, the person you've identified with the entire time, is just as susceptible to falling back on hurtful stereotypes oh, sure. as anyone else. To me, that's... Yeah. But you say, oh, sure, to me, that is what I took away from the movie. That's the thing that 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 put it over the top for me. Well, one of the things that I like is that... And, 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 I think the movie's pretty good. I'm not, like... I think visually, I think it's gorgeous, and I actually like a lot of the voice acting. Um, and to me... That sloth sequence, I've seen it a million times. It has, it continues to make me laugh out loud. It's the premises of that joke is so easy, uh-huh. but God help me. It's, it's really well executed. But I think what gets me is, and yeah, and so she falls into it. But to me, the, the thing, there's a moment where she says, it's not as though a, as though prey can go savage or whatever. Not prey. They don't say prey. They don't call themselves prey. But they say predators and then whatever the non-predators are. But she's like, it's not like, she's in, she says, it's not like a bunny can go savage. And so it's like, okay, so now 
he she's extrapolating something from the specifics of this case and that is where she's gone out of her depth and is now making broad generalizations but what gets me is that there's a moment when when she goes to apologize to him and i've got the quote here okay she's like i know you'll never forgive me and i don't blame you i wouldn't forgive me either i was ignorant irresponsible and small-minded okay moving on uh just like I can't do, I can't do this without you. And after we're done, you can hate me, and that'll be fine because I was a horrible friend and I hurt you. Now, on one hand, this is the nature of this character is to be a bit hyperbolic, um, but there's just such self hatred, just such flagellation here for making a mis- for making admittedly a hurtful mistake. Very hurtful mistake. But at the same time, like there, but in the scene where he's confronting her about it, he's like twisting her words and actively choosing to misinterpret her words. Like she's, he's saying, Oh, are you saying that I'm, I'm like that I could go crazy? And she's, and she's specifically referencing the animals that did go savage. And she's, she's like, no, I'm not saying you're like them. He goes, Oh, there's a them now. It's like, Oh, come on, man. Like you're being I, an asshole now. And it could admittedly, it could be Jason Bateman's reading of the line, but, uh, it's just, it looks as though I get that he's offended and they give us a, they give us a good backstory for him to in which for which to justify it but it's just one of those things that like i and i don't know because now i'm gonna get out of my depth much 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 like um officer Jimmy Hops. Long. Um, <laughs> uh, we don't know i'm gonna find a way to dance around just okay you know just saying check your privilege sure is that's uh, uh that that is reductive but we don't know we like maybe the things he's saying aren't maybe there are aren't aren't twisting aren't being manipulative maybe that is how it feels to him because he's been on the receiving end of this stuff so much in his life and i think that's the thing that gets me is that even though his backstory is i think pretty effective um this is what i'm saying where like it feels like they're now writing with the themes first and now they're having him jump to this. Like I'm fine with him being offended. What she said is offensive, but it's the way that he's offensive and the, and the way he reacts, it seems out of character for him. But then her, but then her response is just, and it just, it, it adds to this, this quality it's really just these two separate scenes, but you put them together and it's just the way in which she just fucking hates herself hates herself and this is our lead we're supposed to be taking our cues from her and she is apologizing as she should but the way she just internalizes and saying like i know you can never forgive me i wouldn't either and just like man it's and eventually he does forgive her which is all well and good but at the same time like it just i feel like they're pushing so hard on the theme at that point that okay so that's I, I get that complaint that they're pushing too hard on yeah. on the theme. I don't I don't agree that it's out of character for either one of them. I think it's for his, the way his offense or his his feeling offended, the way that it manifests itself is a little fast. It like it like goes to eleven uh, very quickly, which is somewhat understandable, I guess, given the circumstances. But uh, her, it's not so much out of character as it is. This is an instance where I feel like 
where, like I said, the specifics of the characters and the specifics of the story, you bring the theme in now, and it's like, and what message are we now sending to kids? Which is like, hey, you're going to be insensitive, and if you are, go fuck yourself. (laughs) You should hate yourself, and you should not expect any forgiveness, and you shouldn't forgive yourself. That's where it's like, her her hyperbole, it's like, if we're going to try and take this and and extrapolate something from it to to live out in our own lives, like, there's no, there's no grace there. And I understand that we shouldn't, you know, as you and I've talked about before, like forgiveness is a, is a big concept and it's a big word. And when somebody says something really hurtful, it's good to want to forgive, but at the same time you should try to see what the person's attitude is and that kind of thing. But, um, and the, the offense itself and what can we forgive Magnolia? Um, but I think in this case, like it's, she said something when she was in front of a bunch of people being pressured by uh, reporters to say something, and then she said the wrong thing, and something came out. Mm-hmm. And I can understand him being offended, but her level of internalized self-hatred as a result is something that I feel like is genuinely unhealthy. Uh, uh, it might uh, it might be, but it's also probably, I mean, and again, this is why your complaint about it would be uh, the allegories and stuff taking over. Right. It The movie, outside of the characters, the movie here is reacting to a century of cinema that has, uh, you know, dealt with race issues by, by mostly by trying to tell the white people who have been insensitive and sure. benefited from racism, benefited from privilege that not to be too hard on themselves. So, right. it, you know, uh, did you, did you ever see the, um, the James Baldwin documentary? I am not your Negro. Did you see I, that? No, I haven't really great. Cause he has a whole, um, it's Samuel Jackson is reading James Baldwin's no. words and it has, he has a whole essay about, um, the defiant ones, uh, okay. which I've never seen, but, um, about, you know, um, how, how the movie is, uh, yes, it's about a white character and a black character getting along, but it's the way that it, it, it just, it, the movie like, again, I haven't seen it, but it is what he's saying. The movie like repeatedly goes out of its way to, um, not make the white audience too uncomfortable with the, and so I think that's, so maybe, so on the one hand, you might be right that it's, that, that it's not, that it's a bit graceless yeah. the way that it happens in Zootopia, but I do think that it is intentionally reacting against that, that legacy. I think storytelling about race relation. The problem though, is that it's to me is that the film is essentially a two-hander, except it, the film is absolutely from her point of view, mm-hmm. you know? And so, as such, we are going to take our cues from her. Sergeant, and I, th- Sergeant, yeah, let's just keep going. Um, and so, uh, so I think, I, I do find myself wondering if it's just, I feel like whether it be in tone, and I think the movie's actually quite good uh, in many ways, but I just feel like and the allegory works in a lot of ways, but when it comes to something as deep as what happens when you do make that mistake, you know, I, because you will, you're going to say something that's going to bother, that's going to offend somebody and rightfully so it will offend them. But like, um, but what do you do at that point? And if we're taking our cues from her, you know, it, I feel like if it were more of a two-hander, if if we were shown his point of view sometimes without her, uh, maybe it would feel more like a genuine hurt, a real mm-hmm. wound that she would say this. But right now, because we're seeing it from her point of view, it looks like he's just not cutting her an ounce of slack. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's just something that really struck me. And like those two scenes, especially just really, which, really which got I, me. I just keep pushing against because those are the two scenes that made the movie for me. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I guess we're not going to see, uh, eye to eye, but, uh, we don't disagree often enough on the podcast. So that's fine. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up for me, I saw a movie this uh, just this week, uh, the week that we're recording, um, is Outfest. Um, and because it overlapped with Comic-Con, I didn't see much at Outfest this year. But I did see a movie just last night called This Is Not Berlin. Um, it does not take place in Berlin. It takes place in Mexico City in the oh, mid-1980s. Okay. Um, It'd be great if it took place everywhere else. <laughs> um, <laughs> Making it the most truthful title you've ever heard. But uh, the title comes from the. Uh, I, I didn't think. Like, I, I, this is another one of those movies, like Britney Runs a Marathon, that I have a lot of, like, I was really pulling for you, you know, and I mm. feel bad being mean, but it just didn't really work for me. And I guess it's loosely based on the director. His name's uh, Hari Sama, on his, his uh, youth. Uh, it's basically about a couple of boys, like, they're like 17 year old boys uh, who were kind of, like, uh, um, into punk rock a little bit uh but they're uh they they go to a private school together and the one his older sister is in the sort of underground performance art scene she's in this like band that's it's a half a band and half just a performance Mm -hmm. art collective and she hangs out at this club um that's uh again it's an underground part gay club gay club part drug hangout part performance art space um part uh speakeasy because it's not it's it's illegal and they they sort of convince her to take them with them and um they get sort of the the two boys become enamored of this life but only one of them gets sort of the the sort of like the tall for lack of a better term the the pretty one of Mm -hmm. the two gets sort of uh deemed okay and ends up sort of running (laughs) the circles of the of the uh, of the cool kids in this Mm -hmm. in this scene um and ends up performing a lot, you know, getting involved in a lot of these guerrilla performance art pieces, which I think, so this is the part that I think the movie is best at Mm -hmm. is that it depicts a lot of bad art that is, I think supposed to be, it's supposed to be bad. Maya, I talked cause I went to see it with Natalie last night and she was like, Oh yeah, I definitely, she was like, I was like, all that art was like bad. Right. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, it was supposed to be right. She was like, Oh, definitely. She definitely felt it was supposed to be, um, uh, so it's, uh, and that, that's the thing I think it's best at. And so like the, this is not Berlin thing comes from one of the artists. Um, uh, I don't know if it's an art dealer or, or what basically like chiding him for mimicking the popular Western art that's going on avant-garde art that's going on in Europe at mm-hmm. the time and not making art that is personal or specific to him. And so he, okay. that's what he says to the, this crowd, you know, this is not Berlin. Yeah. You know, um, uh, so yeah, I've, I've talked about the good things, but unfortunately so much of it is just a really formulaic coming of age story that also, and I kept, because I was seeing it at Outfest, I kept thinking of it in these terms. It's, I, it's depiction of the, this underground gay scene is not very flattering. Like it seems to fall into a lot of sort of morally conservative cliches about these sort of, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Predatory gays, manipulative gays. Like they're 
scary like the when when the 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 pretty boy keeps getting like the further he gets into the inner circle the scary and it becomes almost like laughable that they're that like the way that like horror horror synth comes in oh, really? you know and it's like uh and it's it's such a weird like and maybe this guy you know who who actually was a part of this scene when he was in the 80s when he was young um did find it terrifying but it did yeah. it, it seemed like uh one of those and with it like uh larry clark makes movies like this too this one was made with less force at least larry clark for as hysterical as he can be um uh, at least makes movies that are uh undeniable you know and un- yeah. un- look away from a bull this was kind of like <laughs> this was like uh it's either like Larry Clark making a John Hughes movie, or I think more, it's more like John Hughes making a Larry there Clark movie. There we go. Okay. I think is, is what it felt like. And it's unfortunate because when it gets, I, I actually think the cinematography is really nice. The production design does a really good job of evoking the, you know, 1980s sort of, uh, um, bourgeois Mexico city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like the specificity of a lot of the things, but it's just so much. And so many of the characters are just like stock, uh, you know, um, uh, coming of age, high school age type of movie characters. Uh, it was, yeah, there's a, a lot of potential. And I think a lot of it was left on the table. By the way, if you don't okay. somehow incorporate the term unlook away from into your next review, <laughs> even if it fits, even if it doesn't fit, okay. uh, I'm, I'm going to be very disappointed. Um, okay. Well, when I do review this movie, I'm definitely incorporating the John Hughes. Oh, absolutely. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> when you run across gold like that. Um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, I watched a movie on Blu-ray, uh, directed by Fred Decker, written and directed by Fred Decker called night of the creeps. Um, review forthcoming, um, forthcoming. Yeah. Okay. Uh, imminent, imminent, I say imminent. They mean two different things. They do. Um, I think it is imminent means yeah eminent means like very like respectable right yeah right your eminence well we look i can't guarantee that this review won't be eminent um (laughs) so uh okay it's late everybody (laughs) i didn't know what you were gonna say (laughs) so okay um it is in many ways great it is delightful it's that fred decker and for those that don't know fred decker hasn't done a lot uh i know him mostly as the guy who made the the monster squad, which I watched when I was a kid. Um, there is a real, he is good friends with Shane black and he actually co-wrote the predator, a movie I do not care for. Um, but when you look at this and you look at monster squad and you know who Shane black is, it's like, okay, these are guys that are probably still friends and, uh, and help each other out. Cause like there's a real specific type of cleverness, uh, to night of the creeps that it it just, it's right on the precipice of bothering me, but never quite goes over only with a couple instances. Okay. I'm going to say some character names to you. Okay. All right. What am I supposed to do? You'll see. Uh, these are some, uh, these characters, uh, most of them are cops. Okay. But there's a character, uh, he, she's the officer hops. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> um, and then an officer bats, what is going on? <laughs> um, so 
the love interest, her name is Cynthia. Her last name is Cronenberg. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, there is a, the lead detective, he, his name is Detective uh, Cameron. Okay. There's a, profe- there's a, okay. There's an officer, Romero. Romero, I should have seen There's an officer, uh, Ramey. Okay. And then what, where it really just went off the rails. Waters? Is there a Waters? There's not a Waters. Um, is there a Sales? There's not a Sales. It seems to mostly be genre. Uh, hey, John based. Sales made Brother from Another Planet. That's I, know, I, I, I know he great. did. Um, but one of the funniest ones to me is that uh, <laughs> there's uh, a character. Oh, there's, of course, a um, De Palma uh-huh. in there. Uh but there's a character whose last name is literally, they mentioned it once and I laughed out loud because like at this point he's not even trying to disguise it. There's a character. Antonioni. Oh, I, I wish. <laughs> no, the, there's a character whose name is hyphenated. That's his last, his last name is Carpenter Hooper. <laughs> 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 which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, but that's the thing is like, I don't want to play up the cleverness. It, the film really, it's structured. It starts in the 1950s and he shoots it black and white and like a, 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 an alien vessel falls to earth after some adorable aliens uh, launch it out of their spaceship. And then we never see them again. Um, and then it is rediscovered in the 1980s. And then, even though it's undeniably eighties, uh, as far as fashions and, and score and all that kind of thing, uh, it is structured so much like an old school sci-fi monster movie from the 1950s, uh, with some pretty good visual effects. Um, and it's, it really, again, it's clever, but when it comes to character beats and moments of real terror, um, it it is not tongue in cheek. It's not winking at you like the moments it's supposed to be scary or disturbing. It is, um, and I will say there's a character. He's essentially like the sidekick of our of our main character, and he walks with uh, crutches, um, mm-hmm. and he's kind of a wisecracking type of guy. Um, but he does actually have moments of like real emotion. Um, and we know that he is going to die at some point, but his death scene has real significance and real weight to it. Uh, as does what happens afterwards where, um, we discover like a tape recording that he's left for our hero and you listen to it and it really, it's really meaningful. And the, the, the actor who plays him does a great job. So, and then the, the detective, detective Cameron is played by uh, Tom Atkins, who, um, you might know from Halloween three season of the witch. And I will say that the wonderful scream factory blu-ray has a nice long, uh, like 25 to 30 minute, um, featurette about Tom Atkins. What year is the movie from? Uh, 86. I want to say, okay. There's no character named Craven. No, there isn't. It, that's like the only one. I wonder if he thought that would be too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> more, more so than Carpenter Hooper. Carpenter Hooper. Yeah. Uh, so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I, I really, um, I really enjoyed the movie. I was worried. Like I knew I had heard the name Fred Decker and then I looked him up. And then when I saw the first few minutes of the movie, I was like, Oh no, is this going to be like just way too clever? But no, he commits to it. And I, uh, I really enjoyed the movie. All right. Uh, my last movie and the last movie of the episode, right? 
Yes. So I, uh, you know, I like to, there's a lot of classic movies I've never seen. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to fill in some blind spots. Still never seen the 400 blows. That's, okay. That's the one I always go to. You'll love it. The 400 blows. I'm sure I will. Um, but I also keep a list of under the radar movies from recent years that I didn't see, um, because they didn't look like they needed to be seen like before we did our end of the year wrap sure. up or whatever, but that I found thought were looked interesting. So I watched a movie from 2016 called the confirmation, which is the only directorial effort from Bob Nelson who wrote Nebraska. And oh, this definitely okay. feels like this guy wrote Nebraska, got a lot of thing. And he was like, now I get to, I got some clout. I'm going to direct my movie. Um, Oh, that. And so it, is I think I, I have so many conflicting feelings about it because it's not very good. Yeah. But it also is not very like it's not like other things. It does feel like this is the movie that he's finally got his chance to make and he's not gonna waste his chance. Now unfortunately I do think in terms of like filmmaking and aesthetics he kind of did waste it. I think the movie is hmm. is very uh uh, it has a lot of bland blandness to it. Uh, Gordon Ramsay would not approve, um, <laughs> but it's also so strange and episodic and idiosyncratic. Basically the premise is that, uh, Clive Owen plays an alcoholic divorced dad who gets a weekend with his kid played by Jaden Leber here, who is now has since changed his name to Jaden, Jaden Martell, Jaden Martell. Yeah. And it stars in it chapter one. Yes. Right? Um, and other things. um, and oh that's right he was in the book of henry the crazy ass book of henry uh and so at the same time he so he's got his kid for the weekend at the same time that he is just recently trying to go sober okay and his wife the boy's mom who she lives with played by maria bello has remarried a character played by matthew modine who is okay. a devout catholic okay and now clive owen and maria bello grew up catholic sort of fell away from the church and now Maria Bell is getting back into it which means that Jaden Leverhill's character at about 11 years old is suddenly learning about Catholicism got it and so that's some of the most interesting stuff is like what is the point of view of someone who has been alive for 10 years and has never had any sort of religious instruction or indoctrination or training whatever you want to call it what does he make of stuff that I, like I grew up in, like, so I don't take for granted. Like, yeah, you go in there, you in a little room, you tell the priest your sins or whatever. And like, uh, but I don't question it. It it seems weird to him. And the priest, by the way, is played by our friend, Stephen Tobolowsky. Nice. Um, so you've got all that going on. And then 10 seconds after Clive Owen, uh, has picked up, uh, the, the boy, um, his, he's a carpenter for a mm-hmm. living and his prized tool set that was inherited from his father is stolen out of the back of his pickup truck. Okay. And so the rest of the movie becomes this kind of whodunit where Clive Owen and his 11 year old son that he's not super close to are chasing down leads to try and get his tools back while he is also going through withdrawals from that, <laughs> from quitting drinking and you've got this super episodic structure. You've got Tim Blake Nelson shows up a few times. Yeah. Pat Oswalt has an extended part where there's, there's a part. Pat Oswalt has a little sort of monologue to himself that is 
so funny and also so clearly ad-libbed by Patton Oswalt sure. because it's in his voice and it is not in the voice of the rest of the movie. Uh, but he basically, he plays a guy who is trying to help. He's like connected to like the sort of criminal low life in this small new England town. Mm. He's also a meth head. And so he's like very eagerly sort of like driving them around. Like let's go confront some people. And then he tells a story. He's like, Oh, crazy stuff has always happened. I'm just going to tell the story. Cause I don't want people to go watch the movie. Yeah. He just, he's just like just rambling. He's just like yeah, crazy stuff has always happened to me. My friend, was looking he tried this thing called german apple pancakes and i thought i thought it'd be nice if i could get the recipe from him so there's this website called stormfront which is a neo-nazi <laughs> website but i'm not a neo-nazi but i figured the german thing so i started posting on there next thing you know the fbi's at my door <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a very yeah. Patton oswald type of thing yeah um yes yeah, so, uh, funniest part of, of the movie definitely um Oh yeah, Robert Forster is in it too. Nice. As uh, they never, AA is never mentioned, but he's essentially his AA sponsor, and that they don't okay. they don't name the program, but that's who uh, that's the kind of role he plays in his life. Uh, the movie's all over the place. It's not great, but I also am kind of glad that Bob Nelson got his weird little movie with his panoply of character actors made uh, because it does feel like something distinct that he wanted to say yeah it sounds like it's just one of those things where it's just quirky like i but not I, I, in I a forced it, way like i think right. i think I, I think bob nelson is someone like I, I didn't love nebraska right but i think bob nelson is someone who is a writer and not a film director right and so i don't think the quirk is not forced nothing is nothing is dishonest here it's just yeah. not very inspired from a filmmaking point of view well and you can literally from a from a screenwriting standpoint you can see him being like all right how do we raise the stakes and and literally like okay drunken father oh but he's recovering yeah he's divorced he's got a son for the weekend steals his tools like yeah. everything just like raises yeah. the it's very it's a very writer type of thing yeah. to do um but it, there's also a very personal thing like something you can see this in a movie sometimes there's a movie where it's like clearly the person who wrote this movie knows a lot about x and wanted to have the characters talk about x and sometimes sure. it's very forced and sometimes this movie made me think about carpentry and like sure. he has this whole monologue because he like he built the house that now Maria Bello and Matthew Dean are listening or living in. So he has to take the boy back Sunday morning to get his papers for his paper route. And he notices like a broken, uh, door jam or whatever that hasn't been yeah. fixed. And so he fixes it, does it sort of perfectly and gives us some, this monologue of starting with like, so on a door this part, you know, we say this is flush and we say, this is proud. We call, we use these terms. And then it goes on to this monologue about the idea of thinking about who made the things that you interact with, like the chair mm. that you have. Someone, someone made that the clothes you're wearing. Someone sewed it uh, yeah. you know, or went through a machine, but like people's hands touched and formed these things. It's a really beautiful monologue that also really speaks to the way that I try to think about the world. I think uh, about that stuff all the time yeah. to the point that it drives me insane. Like I need to stop myself <laughs> from thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's little moments of grace in the movie that are really great. I definitely can't like write the movie off, but yeah. it's, it's not something you need to see either. Yeah. It's, 
because I, you know, I was looking up his filmography and I also didn't love Nebraska. There are things I love about it, but as a f- complete film, I don't love it. Um, and I do wonder, and I could do the research right now, but then it would just be silence on Mike, uh, which is no fun, but it's just like, uh, he wrote Nebraska with someone with a more experienced writer, perhaps, uh, which was Alexander Payne. Do you think they wrote it together or do you think he wrote it and then Alexander Payne revised it and they get credited together? Uh, I think that's possible. Well, I, I will say that like when you think, I mean, think if about you see this credit on screen, you can okay. tell because if there's an ampersand, that means they were, Oh, they were a team. If okay. it's the word and, it means different drafts. Okay. The WJ I think is very, I, d- I think I did read that somewhere, yes. Very particular about these sort of things. Um, but what I will say is, I mean, think about Nebraska. Like, it's very much what we're talking about, which is, oh, here's the circumstance. There's sort of this odd uh, catalyst that spurs this action and it's uh-huh. these people they've paired together and they're doing this. Like, that's very, yeah. that, that's yeah, very similar to this. Yeah. Except... And that was something that actually somewhat bothered me about Nebraska, but tonally it all fit together. And I feel like that's because the guy who maybe helped shape the screenplay also directed it and was a, an experienced director. So, yeah, that's a shame because it's it's a great cast. And I, and, it really is. and unsurprisingly, I, I, I'll I bet there are even... some. Go ahead. I, I bet there are some really good moments in there, really good like writerly moments that the actors really seize upon. But, yeah, just as a complete film, I could see it falling very short. 